name is uh, Marshall. I'm glad to see you. Um, and one of the great things about this year for my family is this year the elders in this congregation, you, uh, allowed my family and I to have a sabbatical. And it was, uh, well, it was so good. It was so, so good. Uh, we rested. We connected with family and friends. We had some really cool adventures. I did some really important study on uh, St. Augustine particularly. Uh, the best thing about our sabbatical, frankly, was the time that I got to spend with my wife, Allison, and my son, Peter. It was so, so rich. And if you were here the first Sunday I came back, I said my one takeaway, my big takeaway from my sabbatical was God loves you. <laughs> God loves me, and God loves you. And what I want to talk about today is one of the ways that we hold on to that love. Now, I'd planned to come back and do a five-week sermon series on what I learned. I was going to do a sermon on the role of danger in the life of discipleship. That's what happens when you learn to ride a motorcycle. I was going to do a sermon on generosity. I'd met and spent some time with a radically generous and strategic giver. Uh, uh, I was going to do a sermon on abiding in Christ. I'm actually going to do that sermon either later this fall or in January. And I want to do a talk on the lessons from the life of Augustine. I'm actually going to do that on one of the Grace Wednesdays here this month. But I decided not to do that series, uh, basically because both by principle and by preference, I'm better when I'm kind of working through a book of the Bible, a text of Scripture. Uh, so instead of deep thoughts with Marshall, uh, you got the book of Habakkuk. And i got to tell you, that is good for you. But there is one sermon that I wanted to preach before next week we dive into our fall series, which will be Meeting Jesus in Matthew. There's one sermon I wanted to preach. Let me tell you a story. It was about a month into my sabbatical, into our sabbatical. I had driven across the state of Texas without going on an interstate by myself, and I found myself by myself in El Paso, Texas. Now, the day before, I had done a long solo hike in the Guadalupe Mountains. The Guadalupe Mountains are the highest point in Texas. And I went this long hike, and for how many ever hours I was out, four or five hours, whatever it was, I did not see a single other soul on the trail. The night before that, I'd been at the McDonald Observatory, one of our world's great observatories, under some of the darkest sky in the United States. And then a few days before that, I had hiked down to the banks of the Rio Grande, the border between our country and Mexico. And the Rio Grande is not very wide. It's basically from me to the first row. It is not very wide, about 10, 15 feet wide in most places. And as I was standing there, looking into another country, thinking about the billions of dollars that are spent protecting this little ribbon of water, protecting and getting across that ribbon of water. As I was thinking about this, a fisherman appeared on the other side, a Mexican. And after he had set his line, he called to me across the water. And in my broken, English, broken Spanish and his broken English, we began to talk across the border, making a human connection across one of the most contested borders in our world, which is all prefaced to say I was primed for something to happen to me in El Paso. It was the Lord's Day, it was Sunday, and I went to St. Clement Church in El Paso. Turns out it's the oldest Protestant church in the southwest, from Santa Fe to Laredo. That's a lot of miles. It is the oldest Protestant church, this beautiful stone building. It was Palm Sunday. 
And so we did the procession of poems. But instead of processing the children, they actually gathered the whole congregation, adults and children. They gathered us outside the stone uh, building in their little, their little uh, garden under a grove of oak trees. They gave each of us a palm branch. The priest stood up, read a scripture, and began to pray. They were wearing all the beautiful white garments of Palm Sunday, and they prayed. And then we sang as we processed in. I felt like a little child waving my palm branch, all glory, laud, and honor. And as we processed, I lost it. I began to weep. I had to put my sunglasses on. I, didn't, I, did not, I was just overwhelmed that God had taken on flesh. He loved us so much that he had taken on flesh to become one of us. I don't mind telling you, it wasn't the only time I wept that day in church. Uh, later in the service, it was this beautiful service. We, we, uh, we kneeled, we stood, we held our hands. It was beautiful. And at one point, they, because it was the beginning of Easter week, Passion Week, they read through the Passion narrative, and we were sitting. And I was just trying to take it in, listen, 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 just sitting there. And then when it got to the point of Jesus being crucified, the Scripture writer said, please stand. And I stood at that most holy moment of the crucifixion of Jesus. And again, I lost it. Not only did God become one of us, God died for us. God loves me. God loves me. God loves you. I don't remember much of the sermon that day, but I will long remember the worship. Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever had an experience like that where out of the blue, you don't even see it coming, you get hit in a worship service by an emotional, spiritual Mack truck. What is it about the public worship of the living God that can move us so deeply and so mightily? Worship. Today we're going to talk about worship. Now worship is what we call theologians the means of grace, okay? Salvation and the grace of God are free. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do. It's totally free. But it's also true that you can grow in the grace of God. And theologians call these, the ways that we do grow, the means of grace. Things like prayer, reading your Bible, worship, the sacraments, fellowship, okay? But growth in grace is not like going to the gym and getting stronger so much. It's more like a couple who has been married for 35 years going on a dinner date to, for the thousandth, the two thousandth time, rekindle their love their romance, the flame of their marriage. During COVID, one of my um, friends, whose wife is quite compromised and uh, in, in immune compromised, they live only a few blocks from their grandchildren. They only live a few blocks from their grandchildren, but, but during COVID, because of this immune compromised situation, they could not be with their grandchildren. So they would drive by in their car and they would wave out the window. For a while, they didn't even roll the windows down. They would wave out the window. And then, but as COVID started to kind of lessen in the spring, they started to gather a little bit more, but they still weren't touching each other. And at one point, my friend, he reached over to his 10-year-old granddaughter, and he just touched her on the arm. And he said, I just wanted to touch my granddaughter. And as sweet as that is, what's even sweeter is that she went in, and she got a Band-Aid, and she put a Band-Aid over the spot. She wanted to hold in her grandfather's love. Well, the means of grace are the way that we hold on to the love of God. God loves you. That, friends, is an established fact. It is an established fact. And the means of grace, though, are the way that we hold on to that love. 
the way that we stir that love up in our hearts. In public worship, being with God's people on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, worshiping God is an essential means of grace. So this morning, I want to look at worship, and I want to consider one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. Now, one of the reasons I chose Psalm 73 is Psalm 73 is a poetic echo to the book of Habakkuk that we just finished studying. Both Habakkuk and Psalm 73, Psalm 73 is written by a man named Asaph. He was actually the choir director. Uh, Psalm 73 and Habakkuk are asking the same question. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper, God? Now, the resolution of that question for Habakkuk comes with a vision from God. For the psalmist, the resolution of that question comes in public worship, in the worship of God. Now, if you read this sermon, if you listen to the Vanderlaan's read that passage, Psalm 73 is not a worship psalm, okay? Uh, it is a psalm about doubt. It is a psalm about envy. It is a psalm about the darkness of this man's heart until we see the clear pivot point, which is worship. The pivot point of Psalm 73 is worship because it's in worship, public worship, that the psalmist is sorted out. He sees God and himself more clearly. So in the time we have left, I want to talk about what worship does for us. Real quickly, by worship, I don't just mean singing songs. I mean everything that happens between the call to worship, which for us this morning was Psalm 95, and the benediction when I will raise my hands and pronounce a blessing upon us as we head out today. Worship is everything that happens between those two moments. I'm not going to cover every verse in Psalm 73. Not going to talk about style of worship, you know, contemporary, contemplative, uh, traditionary, jazz, whatever. Traditionary, I, knew, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> new things every week. Not even, I'm not even going to arguably talk about the most important thing about worship, which is glorifying God. I want to talk about what worship is designed and at its spirit-filled best does for us. And here's what worship at its spirit-filled best does for us. It lifts our eyes and it excavates our souls. First, let's look at how worship lifts our eyes. Now, in Psalm 73, Asaph is stumbling around. He's looking at everyone around him, and he's getting envious, and he is mad at God. Let's scan the first several verses. Verse 1, he states the premise, truly God is good as Israel, good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had, my steps had nearly slipped. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember the end of Habakkuk. The end of Habakkuk, the very last uh, uh, verse in Habakkuk says, The Lord makes my feet like the deer. I can tread the high places. This image of sure-footedness that Habakkuk was able to achieve, able to have faith in extreme circumstances. Well, here we see in Psalm 73 the same image but negatively. He's saying, I'd almost slipped. I'd almost forgot about how great and good God is. Next verse, the theme verse in many ways of the first 16 verses of Psalm 73. I was envious of the wicked when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now remember in the ancient world, food was scarce. And so being fat was a sign of wealth. In 2021, we would write their bodies were nipped and tucked. Thank you. Verse 5, verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Let me tell you how I would translate verse 5. I mean, look at them, God. 
They've got it made. If I had what they have, I'd be fine. I would be okay. And for a moment, let's pause and let's appreciate the relevance and the honesty of the Bible. Because who has not felt like verse 5? Everybody else, they're not in trouble like me. Everybody else is stricken, but not me. I look around and everyone seems to have an easier life. Everyone seems to have a better life. Students, everyone around me has friends. My family's so messed up and nobody else's family is messed up. Everybody else's family looks perfect. Everybody else is making the grade. They made the team. They're going to the right college. They're in the right college, but not me. Not me. I have trouble. Or maybe it's at work. That person's career is taking off. They made the deal that makes their life financially set, and I still am struggling day to day, nine to five, grinding it out. Or maybe it's family. My family is broken, or I don't live near my family. I'm estranged from my family. I'm lonely. I have no friends. Every circle I tried to get in, every club I tried to get in, I can't get in. Look at everybody else. They have no trouble. We've all felt like that. But Asaph keeps going with his complaining, verses 6 to 16. He has no rest in his soul. In verse 16, he describes himself looking around as weary. Then something happens. Then something happens. Verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. The sanctuary of God is the temple. This guy's grousing about, about the prosperity of everybody around him, the wicked filled with doubts about God's goodness, filled with envy. And then he goes to worship. Then he goes to public worship and he is transformed. He is overwhelmed. He has this massive change of perspective. Consider just one verse, verse 25. After all that grousing in the first 16 verse, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing, nothing on earth I desire besides you. Nothing on earth. All that I thought I wanted, verses 1 to 16, all I thought I wanted, it's different now. What has happened? In worship, his eyes were lifted. His eyes were lifted. Now, the sanctuary of God is the temple, and it was the pinnacle of this ancient city of Jerusalem. It was a high point in the land. To go to the temple was to always be looking up, to be looking up. And then you enter the gates, and you go in, and you would look up, right? Once you were in, you were always drawn up. I mean, think about it. If you go to St. Peter's in Rome today, you don't go in with your eyes down. You lift your eyes up. Even if you go into Fourth Pres down on Michigan Avenue, you don't look down. You lift your eyes up. You're drawn up to the grandeur. You see, to worship is to have a vertical dimension introduced into your life. We're worried about everything that's around us. We're grousing. We're envious. We've forgotten about God. And then we enter worship and we remember that God is God. God is God. Worship lifts our eyes. There's a famous painting by Norman Rockwell. Maybe you have seen it. It's a painting of St. Thomas Church in New York City, the corner of 53rd and 5th Avenue. The New Yorkers are streaming by the church, all in their dark raincoats, looking down, a huddled, joyless mass of humanity. But the guy is up on the ladder changing the, the, the title for that week's sermon on the little the sign in front of the church. And the weekly sermon's title was, Lift Up Thine Eyes. Last year, somebody did a retake of that painting. And this time, same, same, Lift Up Thine Eyes, same church, St. Thomas Church, 5th and 53rd. But this time, they're, what are they doing? They're looking at their phones. They're looking at their phones. 
You see, there's something about any encounter of the real God, especially in public worship, that lifts your eyes. Remind you that the world around you, the world that you live in, the horizontal, is not all there is. There's this massive truth, and his name is God. It makes everything in your life can be redefined and relative to him. So when you sing, how great is our God, or all glory, laud, and honor, or at Christmas time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, it, our eyes are lifted to see the one thing we need to see, and that is God. So choose your own verb. Worship recalibrates, it reorients, it realigns, it renews, whatever your verb is. I like what the scholar Walter Brueggemann says, in worship, memory in worship, memory prevails, hope resides, and reality is re-perceived. So worship lifts our eyes. But worship doesn't stop there. It also, and secondly, worship excavates our souls. It excavates our souls. Worship digs down. Worship shows you to you. This is not a TED Talk, okay? This is not a lecture. A sermon is not a lecture. A worship service is not a lecture. In fact, when I go into a teaching a setting or a preaching session, I have different goals in teaching and in preaching. Worship and preaching are supposed to engage your mind, yes, but go through your mind and beyond your mind to the deepest part of who you are, which is to say to your heart, to, the, to your heart, the deepest part of who you are. Because, friends, at our core, Descartes was wrong. We are not thinkers primarily. It's not I think, therefore I am. It is not... We're not primarily believers. I believe, therefore, I am. Primarily, at our heart, we are lovers. We are worshipers. We are desired. We are filled with desires. It's not I think, therefore, I am. It is I love. Therefore, I am. David Foster Wallace knew this. He was not a Christian. But in his very famous commencement address at Kenyon College, titled, This is Water, he said this, not a Christian, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, end quote. You see, the premise of Christian worship is that it shows you the real God, and it honors all of who you are on the inside. Your dignity, your desires, every last one of your desires, and also your guilt, your shame, everything that you are, worship is designed to interact with. It excavates you. Consider just a couple moments in any given worship service. The call to worship, where the living, infinite, eternal God, through his word, calls you and me to worship him. Augustine, let me quote Augustine to you. This is Augustine speaking to God. Why do you mean so much to me, God? Help me find words to explain. But then listen to this sentence. God, why do I mean so much to you that you should command me to love you, to worship you? You see, God loves us so much that he commands us to worship him, the infinite, eternal God, the one thing that can satisfy us. You see, because Augustine and the Bible, like David Foster Wallace, knows that we are tempted to worship other things, money and stuff, our bodies and sexual allure, being popular and well-liked, 
And Augustine, David Foster Wallace, and the scriptures before both of them know that all those things, if we worship them, they will kill us. So God commands us to worship him. And in so doing, worship shows us our dignity. But also consider the confession of sin, where every week we come and we ask each other to be honest about ourselves. We have that minute of silence, that minute of silence. I mean, for some of us, it's the only quiet minute in our week, confessing your sins, our guilt, our shame, the things that we did, the things that we didn't do, the things we said, the things we didn't say, the things that we thought. To be honest. I mean, where else in your life are you asked to be that honest? I mean, I've said before, and I'll say it again, if you saw what went through my mind in a given week and I could put it up on a screen, you'd never come back. And I don't mind saying that to you because it's true of you too. If I saw what went through your mind in a given week, I'd be, whoa. Right? It's true for all of us. You see, worship shows us our brokenness. It allows us to look at ourselves honestly in a way that we're not asked to any other place in our lives. The sermon, consider the sermon. If I do my job well, it feels like I'm reading your journal, right? You have this experience? That's not me. That's not me. That's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God to read your life. It's not so much that we read the Bible. Friends, the Bible reads us. The sacraments, consider finally the sacraments. Where we come and we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. We say, this is the body of Christ and it's given for you. Friends, this is a mystery. Because what is being offered in this moment, even in this silly moment we have the little plastic cups, even in that moment... What are we offered? We are being offered to ascend by faith to heaven, to commune with the living God. It is a transcendent moment. And we're all looking for transcendence. Maybe you're looking for transcendence in a mosh pit at Lollapalooza. Not many in this crowd today. Northwestern's not back yet. Maybe you're looking for transcendence in the roar of a Bears game at Soldier Field or enough likes on Instagram or Twitter. Maybe you're looking for that feeling when that deal closes, that big bonus check comes. Looking for transcendence, we're all looking for that feeling. We're all looking to feel part of something bigger than ourselves. And worship shows us our immortality, that we are meant for transcendence. We are meant to be connected to the infinite, eternal God, the transcendent God. You see, worship shows uh, and excavates our, show, our souls. It shows us what is there. And as it does so, it points us to the one who created us in dignity, who gave us, made us in his image. We're not like the animals. We're different. We have dignity. God gave that to us. It points us to the one who loved us so much that he died for our sins. And it points us to the one, Jesus Christ, who offers us communion with the living God, a relationship, communion. To quote Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So worship lifts up our eyes and worship excavates our souls. Perhaps you're like, well, okay. But I feel a little guilty because oftentimes I, I'd love to have that experience, Marshall, that you had in El Paso, but that doesn't happen to me often or ever. Let me say several things. First, you can't program this. You can't program this. There's no formula, right? There's no formula. This is the work of the Spirit. 
But let me give you a couple images and then several ideas. A couple images. First, most weeks, worship is like sitting down to an ordinary meal, getting the nutrients that you need for your week. You need the, wor- you need the nutrients. You need the energy to go into your But at most weeks, it is like sitting down to an ordinary meal. And it's so important that we come to those extra, you need to eat. And coming to a worship service is eating weekly. But there are those moments when lightning strikes. And you never know when lightning's going to strike. It's an interesting question. If you wanted to get struck by lightning, how would you do it? Like, it's not, my grandmother was actually struck by lightning, so I've actually thought about this. But if you wanted to get struck by lightning, what would you do? What I'd do, I'd walk out in an open field during a storm and I'd hold up a one iron. That's what I'd do. What would you do? Struck by lightning. Well, what I'm saying here is that as we come every week to ordinary meals, we're holding up the one iron. We don't know when lightning is going to strike, but it might. You might have your life changed like Asaph. But then three thoughts. I had two points, so I get three applications. Three Presbyterian Ps. First, prioritize being in public worship every week. Prioritize being in public worship. One of my concerns about the pandemic is that some folks have permanently moved to the online church. I've had several folks say to me, it's just so easy. It's just so comfortable. Now, we're going to, make, we're going to continue to offer an online option for probably forever at this point. For those who are traveling, for those who are immune compromised, for those who are sick, it's very important. We're going, to, we're going to continue to do that. But our goal is to get everyone back as they feel safe, as they are safe, into being with God's people on the Lord's Day, worshiping. I mean, we're making every decision in that Like The reason we're adding children's program to our mass service at 9 a.m. is to get as many people back feeling safe at the 9 a.m. with their children, right? Every decision is unto that end, keeping several factors in, in play. But if you think that was awkward, wait for this one. Families with sports and activities, prioritizing worship. Moms and dads make public worship a priority. Now, it's going to sound like I'm needling. It's a fact, though. If you prioritize sports and activities over worship, you should not be disappointed if later in life your children stop going to church. I mean, what message have they had modeled about what matters? My favorite podcast at the moment is called The Brothers Zal. The Brothers Zal, Z-A-H-L, three sons of a very famous preacher named Paul Zal. These three sons, one is a priest, one is a theologian, and one is a writer. And all of them came to faith later in life. Their dad was a preacher, so they were kind of dragged to church every week. And they talk about what happened in their faith life in those younger years and eventually coming to faith in their late teens and their 20s. And I love the way they picture how their parents handled this. Is they, their parents, yes, their parents prioritized church and brought them to church, but they did so with a soft hand. They did so with a soft hand. For instance, when the boys were young, they let them have, and I'm not encouraging this, but they let them have gaming devices in the service, okay? Like, they, they brought them, but with a soft hand, they prioritized Worship. First, prioritize. Second, prepare. Be on time. Uh, If you're going to experience the worship, be on time. All right, I'm moving on. Um, (laughs) But seriously, take a moment, either at home, even if it has to be in the car or in the pew, take a moment to yourself to ask the question before the worship starts what's going on with me? What is going on? With me. There's this great quote from Augustine. In many ways, this sermon is an homage to Augustine. There's this great quote from Augustine. He says, The troubles of our heart 
are more than the hairs of our head. The troubles of our heart are more and more complex than the hairs of our head, and God knows them both. So at the beginning of the worship service, take a moment to ask the question, what's going on with me? What am I sad about? What am I angry about? What am I joyful about? What am I scared about? What is going on with me? So prioritize, prepare, and then third, be present. Be present to yourself. That's the check-in I just mentioned. Be present to other people. It's a simple hello. It's passing the peace. It's not running out after the service. There may be something that someone has to say to you that is the lightning strike. You know, maybe it's not me. Most likely it is not me. It's somebody else saying something, loving you, checking on you. Be present to other people. But then most of all, be present to God. Be present to God. What is God saying to me today? What is he challenging me with? What is he teaching me? How is he comforting me? So prioritize, prepare, be present, and then walk out into the field and hold the one iron, waiting to get struck by lightning, but also sit down to what's an ordinary meal, what's an ordinary meal, and let God feed you with his daily bread. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we, um, we thank you that not only do you love us, but you love us enough to help us get that love, to hold on to that love. And we thank you that you have given us public worship as one of the main means that we may get that love and stir it up in our hearts. Would you make it so for us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.